Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace and love toward us. You have loved us even when we were still sinning. You have loved us. Lord, we recognize that it is us that, is, that put your son, that put Jesus on the cross because of our sin. Because of Adam's sin, yes, we inherit our sin in our nature. But Lord, we also recognize that we, us, that we sin against you and you alone. And we are sorry. But we know that we don't have to sit in the mire of our brokenness and the cesspool of sin and shame and guilt. But we are liberated. We are clean. Not because of us. We recognize that it is because of the complete work of your Son. And so, Father, therefore, we give thanks. And we thank you for what you have done through the Son. We thank you that we can know you, God, by knowing your Son. We thank you for an opportunity to open your word and to gaze upon it and to hear it read and to hear it proclaimed. Lord, I would plead with you this morning that you would reach into the heart of every soul that is present in our midst and for every church gathered together and for any wayward Christian who has not showed up to a gathering of worship of Jesus today, that you would reach deep and change and transform hearts because we know that you can do that. So we plead that you would. Apply your word to our hearts, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I just talk a little uh, vision very briefly as we get into the text, before we get into the text, before we get into the point of what we're talking about today? At Branches, we say um, that we are about knowing, growing, and going. It's very simple. It's very short. It's what we are about. When we say no, why we start with the whole idea of knowing, because it's not about us knowing God, it is, but it's more, it's rather about the God who knew us first. He knows us and enables us and frees us and liberates to know him. We start with that because it's about God and what he does to our human broken hearts draws us to himself. John 6, Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draw him, and everyone the Father draw, another one that the Father draws, I will raise on the last day. And the second part of our mission is it's not just to know God, and therefore be in the gathering of worship and knowing him, and knowing his word, and knowing that he drew us to him, and not the other way around. It is also that we are to grow. The goal of discipleship, we, I say that till I'm blue in the, fla- blue in the face. Read it. Colossians chapter 1. Read it. Ephesians chapter 4. The goal of discipleship is maturity. It's maturity in Christ. And we're going to do that through something that one of our brothers, Steve, was talking about and who leads these, these branch groups. It's one of the ways. It's not the only way. You know, the church just is, it isn't just gathering to sing praises and hear the word of God proclaimed on Sunday, which no one should neglect. It is about being the church together on mission discipleship of one another. And so we want to call you, encourage you to be a part of that. We understand that there are seasons of life when it is very difficult. You might be sick or you might have kids and trying to figure it out and all that kind of, you might have a dog to take care of. I mean, I don't know. But we want you to know that we care about and know that we want you to mature. We want to present you before the Lord and say, look, Lord, we did all that we could 
to bless, to encourage, to exhort, to examine, to feed the, them the word of God, to lead God, protect, guide, uh, care. And third and lastly, we, we talk about mission. So know, and grow, and, and, and go. We are the people of God. God has given his church a mission. That mission is to make disciples until he comes. So until every tro- tongue, tribe, and nation has the opportunity to hear about the good news, the beautiful gospel, we are on mission. You see, one day it goes away when we see him face to face and when we're with him. But in this life, this one life that you get, I'll steal words from John Piper, don't waste your life. Live your life. Live at peace. Get married. Have children. Pass on the gospel to them. And pass it on to your neighbor, the good news of the gospel. And do that in Christian community along with us. Commit yourself to God's mission. He has proclaimed it. He has told us. He ascended before the elect of God and said, Lo, I am with you until the end. So I want to tell you this morning, before to gaze into the word of God, remember, know, grow, and go. If you want, you're, and you're ready, you could turn your device or the scriptures to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, starting in verse 15 through 45. Um, I will not read it yet, but I will, I will tell you about it. Matthew 22, 15 through 45. I'm doing something very unusual. I'm actually using the iPad to look at my notes. And I didn't turn off my notifications and someone texted me, man. Whoever that was, dude, don't text me when I'm trying to talk. (laughs) Man, it's so so weird. Okay, so (laughs) it threw me off. Um, When I was was, uh, very young, it was was one of the first times I had uh, uh, dealt with and seen this issue of an attitude toward authorities. Not that I've ever had an attitude toward authorities. But uh, it was one of the first times, I, one of my f- earliest memories of, of seeing um, something different than appealing to parents, but instead having just a really bad attitude toward parents was when I, I stayed the night at a friend's house or a neighbor's house years and years ago, last year. No, years and years ago when I was young. And I've told you all this before, but I, I, it was a time when I, when I saw uh, another, you know, a peer, a young person, elementary age, you know, instead of saying, hey, mom, dad, you know, and asking something and, then, and, and therefore appealing to them and dealing with the consequences of the yes or no and then submitting to it. By the way, that's biblical. You can appeal. You as parents can teach your children to appeal to you. It's good and right. And then they have to learn how to deal with the consequences of yes or no and then submitting to that authority. By the way, you teach them that so that they will learn how to obey the God of the universe. Okay, that's why you do that. And they start to learn how to do that at a very young age. Or not, is what happens. And so I observed this, this, this attitude toward his parents, and I was, like, horrified. And growing up in another household, I knew, like, man, there's no way that would fly at my house. It would be kapow. My mom's right here. She knows. She knows. And it was from her. No, it wasn't from her. But they would, they would, uh, they would. Cert- my parents would certainly inflict uh, uh, just punishment for disobedience. But as I went through life, I've seen other ways, and maybe you're tracking along. I've seen that s- same thing. 
you've seen a particular type of attitude that just didn't sit well with you and it was kind of weird, or maybe not. I remember being in high school and observing, um, uh, just being a part of, of a team, of a wrestling team, and seeing a, a fellow high school student, uh, along with a group of high school wrestlers, listening to the high school coach, who was not a kid. He was not in his 20s. He was not in his 30s. He was in his 40s, upper 40s. He was a, he was a good dude. He was a guy that actually knew his craft. He was a teacher. So we really were in a place of submission to him because he's a teacher at this, this high school, and we were, you know, there in the class to participate and listen and submit on some level. And I remember at this gathering, the, the coach was just kind of addressing some things that we needed to know, whatever it was. I don't even remember the details. But what I do remember was one of my fellow teammates, who was a senior at the time, I was a freshman, and seeing him interact, not appealing, but questioning and trying to subvert his authority and his knowledge very publicly trying to embarrass, trying to subvert his authority and philosophy. I can't even remember the details, but I just remember seeing that and seeing the attitude and being troubled by it. Once again, not that I would ever do that. That's sarcasm because I most certainly have. But I remember just not sitting right. Now here's the thing. Today in the Word of God, what we are going to see today is we're going to see something like that. We are going to see a particular type of attitude aimed at Jesus. And one of the big questions I have for us today is this. How or what should our attitude toward God be? What should our attitude toward God be like? What is a appropriate, what is an appropriate question of God to God? What is inappropriate? What I really want to get at is the heart and the attitude of us as we ask the questions. Because on one hand, it is perfectly right and legit to be, have questions and to be able to ask certain questions of God. He encourages it, and there is no question too big or too hard for him. But there is another issue related to this whole area, and, and that is our heart, our particular attitude. The thing that we will see in the passage this morning is an attitude that is far away from God, that is rather bad, theological term, pending, but in an attitude nonetheless that is not appropriate. And I would argue this, as we go through the text, that we will see a particular type of attitude aimed at God, and I would venture to bet that that kind of attitude would work its way out, not only beyond God, but beyond your neighbor, beyond our neighbor. I mean, I wonder, I wonder what influence or what bridge there is between our, our attitude toward God and our attitude toward our neighbor. I mean, if we have an attitude toward God, how much more is it possible to have an inappropriate attitude toward our neighbor, no matter who that neighbor might be? Wife, children, friends, physical neighbor, enemy, my favorite to love, my enemy. Yeah, we all know, most of us here, call ourselves Christians or have been around Christianity enough to know that God does command us to love him and to love our neighbor. 
And so I have this question. What should our attitude toward God look like? And so we'll deal with that. Now, as we consider the people that come to Jesus and have questions of him, it's important that we know a couple things about what's going on. Now, I'll kind of give you some ideas of what has led up to this moment, some reminders of where we are. We are in Matthew, of course. We are in this whole series called The Disciple Maker. That's what I called it. It's related to this big question of how does Jesus disciple or how does Jesus um, uh, disciple his followers, right? How does he make them? And I tell you this, that you and I will continue to learn what it means to follow Jesus as we look at the text, as we look at the word of God. And we will read it. But what has led up to this moment is Jesus coming into town toward the end of his life. He has come in on a donkey, an animal of peace. And people have all these different expectations of Jesus. And they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And yet, in their minds, they have something radically different than what Jesus has in mind. And he knows that. You see, they're thinking, Son of David, Christ, Messiah, he's going to come with a sword and whoop butt Jesus or Messiah. But that is not the Jesus that shows up. It is therefore not the Jesus that meets their expectation. He is a Jesus that comes wielding peace. He comes as the suffering servant who will die on the cross and bring peace for them to God and toward one another. He is the suffering servant who will do this. And they don't totally get that. But he comes in. They don't totally understand him. And he goes to their, their central place of worship, the temple, and he, and he overthrows tables. Because the people of God have gotten completely inward focused and they are not on mission with God. And he flips over the tables in the temple. It's really an interesting scene. He curses a fig tree. And he has these interactions with the religious leaders of his day and the crowds are listening because you know, these are experts. And they are catching all that he is saying to them. And they are not liking it. They are not liking it one bit. You see, he's saying, hey, look, the kingdom of God, it's like a wedding. And, uh, and you know what? He sent his servants to invite everyone. And they were so busy with their farming and their life and their work, they had no time. They had no time for this king. And they know what Jesus is throwing at them. And so he forgoes those people, and he sends, his, he sends his servants out to the sinners, the wretches. And the other people are not worthy. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious people, man, they're catching on to this. They don't feel good about this. And they come to the very moment that we're about to read here. Of We are now going to turn the heat up on Jesus. We are going to ask really hard questions. And by the way, when you look at the questions, when you consider the questions that they're asking, they're not bad questions, not illegitimate questions. They might be questions that even you have. They might be questions that you've had. I mean, as I journey as a Christian, as a pastor, man, there's plenty of things that I have questions I don't know the answer to. Plenty. Do you want to know why? Because I am not infinite. Because I am not God. God is God. I am just a man standing before his God. Thankful that he died for me and paid for me, forgives me and loves me. Understanding that 
I don't get to know the answer to every question I have. But there they are, with a very interesting attitude, which you will pick up on when we read it. You see, they have a very different purpose with the questions that they're coming to Jesus with. But let me, let me just highlight three of them. Because the last is his question toward them. There's three questions. One, one question is a question of, is it biblical to pay taxes? Now, when we read the, te- when we read the text, I'm actually going to give you some insight into why that's a problem. If you've never paid taxes before, you might not under- completely understand what people are facing. If you're younger, it's okay. Your day is coming. My daughter uh, has had a job this year for the first time, and we were like, oh, man, tax man, you know, tax person, whatever. She's got it, too. And we're, like, wrestling with people's questions. Is the tax man going to charge us for a daughter? I'm like, like, are we going to pay more than what she got paid? Like, that, like, I don't want that. So if you guys have any advice on where to go, because ours is expensive. The next question is this. Not only is, is it biblical to pay taxes, but secondly, is there life after death? Now, I'm, I'm summarizing a question that comes from another particular group called the Sadducees. Because it's better understood in light, of the, in light of the story that comes Jesus' way. You'll need background and kind of some information to understand. But, but at the heart of what they're asking is, is there life after death? And they try to point out that it's absolutely ridiculous to believe so. Oh, in the way that Jesus views it and the Bible views it. The third question is something like this, and what is the greatest commandment, which, you know, we read today. And then finally, the last question is a question from Jesus aimed at them. And that question, Jesus asks, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? All right, so it's very interesting. Those are the four questions that be, are dealt with. As we go on, I, I want to I exhort and encourage and challenge, so let, let's get into the text. The bigger overarching question is this. What should our attitude be like toward God in regards to our questions? And I want you to understand that it's perfectly legitimate to ask questions. In fact, we want people to come to branches with their questions. If you were to look at my, my listed values before we ever planted branches, we were just dreaming and thinking and envisioning, you would see, well, that people could come with their questions. And their, and their doubts, and to be safe. And so I want you to know, and I want you to hear, like, like it's okay. Like, but, but re- what really matters is, like, your attitude with it, though. And I would encourage you with that, because we're not just dealing with other human to human, which matters to God, but we're talking about our attitude toward God himself. Let's look at the text, chapter 22, verse 15. So one of the first questions that's going to come up is this question of, is it biblical to pay taxes? And in chapter 22, verse 15, it says this, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. The Pharisees, religious leaders, very respected around the people around. They know the word of God. They are a major authority. Paul the apostle was formerly a Pharisee. Like their instruction is high level. They know their Bible. They believe in the Bible but they are struggling with Jesus massively. But they come, and look at their purpose, look at their motive. They come to entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. It's two different groups. It's worth mentioning. Uh, One is they send their their own followers, their own disciples. All right? 
Uh, these are not the disciples of Jesus. These are like the disciples of the other, the Pharisees. So they're being trained. What, what better person to send than a cage stager, right? Someone that's like studying, has hard questions, likes to ask questions that no one has the answer to, you know? I mean, so like they're, they're like, man, let's send them. And then that next group is this, this people called the Herodians or the Herodians, the Herodians, the Herodians. We don't know a lot about them, but judging from their name, you can tell that they are followers of, of Herod politically of some sort, in some way. And uh, they're really for that. So we have religious leaders on one side, and then you have uh, pe- or students of them that want to ask these questions. And then the other side, you have these people that are very politically charged. Now, the Pharisees are politically charged as well, but these guys have like a, a political uh, you know, interest. And now, so as we look at that, now then it's going to make sense in light of what the, the question that they're going to ask as it relates to taxes, okay? So they come to these people and they say, teacher, we know that you are true teacher. I, I, you got to read it like this or you just don't capture the, the you just, this God, teacher, we know that you are true. A teacher, you teach the way of God truthfully. I mean, am I right, guys? Am I right? Am I right? Uh, you do not care about anyone's opinion. That, that is not to say like, that he doesn't like them or doesn't care or is inconsiderate. That's not what it means. It just means that he's not swayed by the pressures of what others will think. He's not swayed by that. They know that of Jesus. That's Jesus' reputation. For you are not swayed by appearances like their face, you know, whatever. Tell us then what you think. Now, Aren't these your favorite kind of questions that come when you read the text? They're they're favorite. It it requires yes or no, and that's it. You get, I'm going to ask you a question, and it's a yes or no, and and it's it's meant to entangle. It's meant to trap, right? Um, Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But here's the difficulty judging by what Jesus' response, we also get some insight into his sense of where they're coming from and their attitude. Jesus' response is, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? In case you're fuzzy on what a hypocrite is, it's not a nice word, but it, it means you basically are play-acting. You put a facade, you know, you've got this, this real question, but you don't. You have an underlying agenda to entangle the Son of God, and why do you, why do you put me to the test? And then he does something that is absolutely profound and brilliant. Jesus says, show me the coin for tax. Now remember, you have a religious group and then you have a politically charged group. If Jesus says it's okay to pay the tax, there's a problem that maybe it's hard to see at first. And that is there are a group of people that are paying a lot of tax and they're really frustrated at it. It, with it, and they want Jesus to lose favor with this group of people. Take a guess at the percentage Jewish people were paying in that day. That's rhetorical. Don't take the guess. 50, scholars say 50% of their income was going to this tax. 50%. I haven't lived in a lot of other countries. I don't know, like, the rank. I've heard, I hear they can go much higher in other countries. That is not what I'm accustomed to. That feels a lot. And I will tell you this, they did not like it. 
They did not like it, and that's why they are asking the question of Jesus, because they want him to lose favor. Remember, they're not happy with him. Let's ask the question. Let's cause, let's cause a stir. Let's get, get him to get some enemies. They want to, they want to uh, try to frustrate him. And, and Jesus says, show me a coin. What's fascinating here is that he says, show me a coin. He doesn't reach into his pocket and pull one out, which would be legitimate for him to do. Maybe they had a common purse and so forth and all that. But then they're like, oh, okay, I got one. You get it? And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to, to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to him the brilliant answer. Well, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And then it says, when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. His answer is absolutely brilliant. On one hand, you have the religious people you have, uh, that are, they want to see if you're going to do what God says in terms of paying to governments. Jesus is actually going to deal with that. On the other hand, you have a group of people that they don't, man, they, they just feel burdened by everything, and they're gonna lose, you're going to lose favor with them because you say to do this. And Jesus says, well, look, give to Caesar. Give the governing authority what belongs to it, and give to God what belongs to God. And so this is number one. This is the point. Now, all these points are different. They're, they're different time frames. So if you're trying to, like, figure out, like, they're all going to be the same time. They're not. Some are going to be much shorter. So number one, give the state what is the state's, and to God what is God's. On one hand, that is very simple and very easy, but, you know, isn't that so hard for us? On one hand, we know it's okay that we pay our taxes, and we should, and you should not cheat them, and you should do it right. God is telling his people, his disciples are learning as they're hanging out with him, that they should give to Caesar what is Caesar. They should give to the governing, the state, what belongs to the state. And they should also give to God what belongs to God. What's interesting is everything they're giving to the state actually belongs to God anyway. It's secondary. I mean, it's primary for most of you, just like, because you, you're experiencing it. But it's really secondary. It all belongs to God. But and he includes the second piece of give that to them. But give Everything that belongs to God, God. Man, can we talk money just for a moment? Money is one of the most difficult things to talk about in human relationships. Man, you can show up and confess your biggest sin as long as it's not about money. Do you know that? People, people can confess their biggest sins. I'm, I'm just telling you from experience, I'm just listening to people. Horrific things. But if you ask them if they're tithing, Oh, I mean, stuttering, embarrassment, you know, man, that's secret, you know, like all kinds of interesting things. Like our view of money is so interesting. Jesus says, man, where your treasure is, there where your heart will be as well. I mean, Jesus is instructing all around him. Yeah, you know what? Give to the government. Give to the state what belongs to the state. But give to God what belongs to God. And I would say this, brothers and sisters. Liberate yourself. Free yourself. Give to God what belongs to God as well. But notice their attitude. Notice they want to trip up the Savior. Notice that they leave marveled. Now that's the first group. That's, that's the Pharisees. The next group that's going to come to, they're going to ask another question, is their life after death. They're, they're essentially going to ask that. So after moving from give to, give to the state what belongs to the state and give to God what belongs to God, you have another form of questioning with, from a group called the Sadducees. A little background to understand these people. You know, the Pharisees like, are your really conservative type of followers of the Bible. The Sadducees would be, I'm just going to kind of call them like your liberal side. 
You see, the Sadducees are different from the Pharisees in that, number one, they have a common view. Uh, they, they, they believe the Bible to an extent. They just don't believe as much the Bible as the Pharisees do. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection, for example. And the Sadducees do not believe in angels. Now, if you're, I, I want to I show you why, it's partly why they, they struggle with this. Because the clarity of the resurrection isn't until later, although Jesus is going to make it very clear. But, but on one hand, they've been struggling with clarity about the resurrection. Now, so to be fair, I want to show something from the text of Scripture that just shows their difference. But then I, we're going to also look at how Jesus responds to this group that doesn't believe in the resurrection. They're going to ask this question about the resurrection. They're going to give a story behind it, and they're going to tr- attempt to show how ridiculous, from their view, quote, end quote, how ridiculous a resurrection is. They're going to try to prove that. And then Jesus is going to deal with their, their very tough question. Remember, everyone's turning up the heat, and they have these questions. Now, later in the text of Scripture, we see clarity on resurrection. For example, we see Isaiah chapter 26. Your dead shall, you don't have to turn it, you can ask me for it later, I can send it to you later. Isaiah 26, it says this, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to to the death, to the dead, excuse me. Also, Daniel chapter 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Here's the problem for the Sadducees. They don't read the rest of the Bible. They only read the first five books. They don't think that the first five, five books talk about the resurrection, but Jesus is going to do, what he's going to do is he's going to show them that it does brilliantly, and it's just something they've missed. But they don't believe that because they don't believe those later, later parts of the Old Testament where it comes up very clearly, you can say. So as we get into it, it says this. The same day, so now you have the Sadducees. They have seen that the, the Pharisees have been silenced. They try to, they try to take their turn and, come, turn and come at them. They say this. Who's, First of all, it says, the same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, teacher, who's, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Hey, the last several weeks when we were going through Ruth, like the whole issue came up, where you saw an Old Testament idea where, where if they didn't want a name of Israel to, to go out or to perish, and so if, if a brother's, uh, if a brother died and there was no children, the, the, brother, the other brother would marry the widow so that they would, uh, there would be an inheritance in his name and it would go on. And so want, what they want to do is they're going to they're give Jesus their, this idea and they're going to say, well, and they're going to raise their tough question. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died. And having no children, left his wife to his brother so too the second and the third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, Jesus, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all were married to her. They all had her. What they're trying to do is they want to point out the ridiculousness from in their mind about the issue or the existence of a resurrection. Because their, their point is, wow, look, this will be polyandry, one woman married to multiple men, you know, it's polygamy and polyandry. I mean, look at that. That's ridiculous. 
And Jesus' response is amazing. He says, uh, after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, the woman, after everyone had her, whose is she? 29, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now notice that he's addressing angels to a group of people that don't even believe in angels. And then he's going to show them something profound. I want to show you something about the text here, and then it's, it should be mind-blowing. And as for the resurrection of the dead, Jesus knows that they don't acknowledge those other prophetic books, just the five, and they think there's no resurrection there. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, Jesus appeals to them with Scripture, have you not read what was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham and to the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they, are, they were astonished at his teaching. Let me paint a little picture. They understand Bible. They know this passage. This is the passage of the burning bush. This is Moses being called by God to listen to him. And what God is doing is speaking to him in the present tense. That's very key to understand. He's saying, Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, here's the thing. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at this point, Moses is, is in Egypt. Those guys are dead. What God is saying is, if I promise that, that you will be alive, then you will be alive. Because here's the present day, Moses, and I am their God. They are alive. You follow me, and you will live too. And what he's showing, what he's showing the Sadducees is that you thought, you just don't understand the word of God. I have told you that I am the God of the living from, from beginning to end, but you have missed it. Now look, you might be here today, and I, I don't know what, where you're coming from. Some of you are saying, man, I, I just, I love Jesus, I want the word of God, I want to follow him. And maybe you come, but maybe you come here with your questions and your doubts. And what I want you to understand as a pastor of this church who loves this city, who's in the city and for the city, I want you to come with your questions and your doubts. There's an opportunity to ask questions. But what's really, really important is to deal with the issue of how our attitude toward God, our attitude and our posture toward God really, really matters. Because what you really see here is a contrast to what God would want and what, and what these other people were bringing to him. And that was a terrible attitude. They were coming to trip up God, to ask a question they didn't think that God could answer, although there was no question you can ask that was too big for God. There was no problem that you can run into that is too big for God, even though there are times when we feel like it and we think that there is. But I want to encourage you and tell you that, that you can come with your questions, your biggest questions, but I also want to encourage you simultaneously that you must come with a posture that says you are God and I am not. And so what he says is this. Essentially what we need to learn is this, number two, that we are to believe in God and believe in his power. Now there's another question that comes up and it's beyond the resurrection. It's beyond, is there life after death? It's a question of the greatest commandment. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, so you had Pharisees get tripped up and then the Sadducees come. And then the Pharisees hear the Sadducees got tripped up 
and they think we really have a question, they have asked two really tough questions. How would you answer those questions? Well, now that you have the answer, you can answer them. But how would you answer those really tough questions? They're not easy. And I just gave you some background maybe you had never considered before. Maybe you didn't know the Sadducees didn't believe in all the Bible. And you know what? That might be you here today. Maybe you believe parts of it, but you don't believe in all of it. Maybe there's certain sins you fall into because you don't believe in all of the Bible. Say, like, are you sure God really said that? So the third question is, is geared, toward, geared like this. What is the greatest commandment? And know this, that from where they're coming from, there are hundreds of commands from God, about 600 or more. I haven't counted them in a while, but over 600. And they come to him, they think, man, we got such a great zinger, we got a great question, we're going to trip up God, and we're going to ask him, what is the greatest? And hoping to spark some sort of debate and discussion, and, and what they do want to do is they want to pull his authority out from under him. They want to challenge him, and they want people to challenge him. They think, you are not theologically savvy enough, Jesus, to be around us. That's what they think. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Once again, test. They have a bad attitude. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the, all the law and the prophets. Observe something as you read that. There is, no, there is nothing. There is silence. The next verse from Matthew is, now while the Pharisees were gathered together. They are dumbfounded. They don't know what to do about him. He has just blown their minds and all the listeners' minds. Because now what God has pointed out is that your, how you interact with your neighbor is completely dependent on your interaction with God. And he's quoting Bible to them. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And they're tripped up. And I would say this. That one of the reasons why we have a hard time loving neighbor, I would argue, is because we have a hard time submitting and having the right type of attitude and heart and posture toward God. I would say our interaction with others is a reflection of our interaction and heart toward God. And Jesus marries the two of these together, that they're just like, you, can't, you cannot love neighbor without loving God first. Love God with all that you have, and what's going to flow from that is a love for neighbor. And when we are having a hard time, and, and, and our attitude, our posture toward others is very difficult and messy and horrible, and it is, this is a messy and broken world, guys. Man, sin is in it. Man, the grace of God is that Jesus died for us, even when we struggle with loving our neighbors ourselves. he died for us. So as you wrestle with, man, I don't live it out perfectly, you won't. But know this, that Jesus did. Know that Jesus did. Let the burden come off. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yes. Love God with your whole be being. Yes. And as messy as you do that, so say, Lord, I just need your help to do this well. I want to be obedient to you. Help me know that Jesus died for you. After the questions come Jesus' way, Jesus turns it around, and now he's going to ask them a question. 
they have got more and more silent as we, as we have gone along. And I'm going to deal with this really quickly, and I'm going to bring us in for a close. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, what they do is they give him a theological, an ordained minister response. None of them would disagree with. They're all on the same page, and they do it just like this. What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then? David in the spirit, by the way, Jesus, listen to Jesus' view of scripture. Do you see that? He says David in the spirit. Therefore, scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the quotes that he had quoted earlier is the word of God. Have you never read the word of God? Notice Jesus' view of Scripture. Why do we believe in the Word of God? If you're struggling with whether or not to believe in the Word of God, can I tell you this? You want to want to know why we believe in the Word of God? Because God has changed your heart, and you should look at the view that God has of the Word of God. When He lifts it high as His Word, and we are too as well. What do you think? Whose son is He? How is it that David in the Spirit calls Him Lord, saying? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If, they, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son, Jesus asks. It's a great question. From, from, from the body of David would come this Messiah. He calls it. By the way, they don't disagree with his use of scripture here. They know that the psalm that he is quoting is God-breathed. They believe that. They don't dispute it. And they know that David is talking about a Messiah. They don't dispute that either. They just, they don't like Jesus. And Jesus says, what, but how? How does he come from his body and call him Lord? If he is his son, how can he call him Lord? Now Paul is going to deal with that. He's going to say that he is Lord. Romans chapter 1. How is he Lord? Until I, and so it says, Lord, how did he, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put you, uh, your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, for from, the day, from that day, no one dare ask him any more questions. Now look, God is for your questions, but God is examining our hearts and our posture toward him must be humble. And so when we, do, when we ask the question of what our attitude should be toward God, I would simply say this, that we should be humble before our God, period. Our hands should go over our mouths and we should be silenced and our, we should go prostrate on the ground and worship him. That's what we should do to Jesus. Because he is the son of David. He is God in the flesh. Now look, I just want to show a couple texts that just sort of addressed, uh, addressed attitude, uh, man's posture toward God. I just want to highlight it really quick because I didn't earlier, but I want you to see this. In the book of Jude, I'm going I'm to make an argument. I'm going to quickly uh, just point you to this, and I'm going to make an argument. I'll, I'll raise this question. Um, Jude is going to say, hey, there are people that blaspheme angelic beings, and it's a foolish, foolish thing to do. 
Okay? Now, now notice, so in Jude, starting in verse 8, Yet in the, like, in the like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. He's referring to angels. But when the archangel, check this out, when the archangel contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. If the word of God says that we should not blaspheme angelic beings, which, have you, have you not heard songs that they're just like, devil you suck, and all this kind of stuff, and you're like, like whatever. I mean, that was like really popular early 2000s. Or, man, I've always thought, dude, that is like really dangerous. I don't think God's down with that. In fact, I think it's really dangerous. If angels would say, the Lord rebuke you, how much more should we watch our posture and our heart toward blasphemy God? Let me give you another example of our posture toward God, of how it should be. This is God's response when we get haughty. In, chapter, in Romans chapter 9, why does he still find fault is a question that comes up. For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor, honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Or how about in the book of Job? Here is God's response to Job after miles and miles of reading. In chapter 38, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut the sea with doors when it bursts out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and a thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud ways be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? I share this with you. In dealing with the, the, fair, the religious and the political people in Jesus' day, coming to Jesus with this insane, foolish attitude, and I say to myself and to fellow brothers and sisters that our attitude toward God matters profoundly. If God would say to us, don't dare blaspheme an angelic being, how much more should we not blaspheme the King of kings and the Lord of names, Lord of lords, whose name is Jesus? Come with your questions, and God can handle every single one of them. But come humbly. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We give thanks and we praise you. Father, be with us to your glory so that your name would be known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.